Praise the Lord. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And uh, I've been on a teaching series uh, preaching through the book of Thessalonians. I took a break uh, the week of Christmas and preached a Christmas message uh, called The Indescribable Gift. And then last week, I took a break and uh, preached a New Year's message. And uh, so this week, we're back into our Thessalonians study. And um, I've been very happy with these uh, expository studies, because with expository studies, you have to go in detail through each book, which gives you background information, historical information, but it also forces a pastor to preach whatever's on the page, which is different than selecting through the Holy Spirit each week, a unique message each week, which has its strengths in itself. But this, you preach things that you don't often think you're going to preach. And so when you come to each one, you're like, you know what, I've got to preach that in the power of the Holy Spirit exactly the way that that was written. And so I really appreciate this type of uh, preaching, and uh, I hope you do too. So I'm going to read here verse 1. It says, Finally then, brethren... We request, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as, now listen, you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Okay, saying, We instructed you on how to walk. You're already doing it, but we want you to be more excellent at it. More and more excellent. Hallelujah. Is that everybody's prayer this morning? More and more excellent in how we serve the Lord. For you know what commandments, that's a big word. You know what commandments that we gave you by what? The authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is... I could have called this message the avenger. My my, my uh, translation says the avenger... In all these things, just as we also told you before and we solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are here in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to what? Excel even more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. Work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for your anointing. I pray that your Holy Spirit would take this text and you would preach it the way you want it preached, Lord. You would speak through me. You would take me out of the way, Lord God, and preach 
your word in this house today, Lord, that we would receive instruction and commandments from the mouth and the authority of the Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, and everybody said, thank you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So there's a lot in here. title of my message is Sanctification, Walking to Please God. Walking to Please God. And when you hear that, you think to yourself, well, of course, of course, we're all walking to please God. And we almost take it for granted when we hear that phrase, don't we? Sometimes we think to ourselves, yeah, that's obviously what I want to do. Let's please God. How many would say that? I want to please God in what I do. Now, Eddie was talking this morning about not building a legacy for yourself. How many know that we're not building a legacy for ourselves? We're not building a legacy to please ourselves. We're building a legacy to please God. To do what God's called us to do and be pleasing to God. And so many things that we do, how many of you are aware so many of the things that we do are to please us? And, oh, some of you act like you've never lived that life, okay? All right. In fact, how many know that it is almost, it's really difficult to think of another way to live life? Because it comes so natural just to please us. Hey, uh, Ryan, why don't you go and turn that light on? I don't want anybody to fall asleep on me. I'm getting kind of boring here. Is that too bright? Give me, give me all of them. Give me all of them. I want everybody wide awake. Everybody drank a lot of coffee this morning, right? Lots of donuts. Awesome. Good, the plan is working. <laughs> now, how many know it's second nature, even when we think we're living to please God, to please ourselves? And every decision we make, even when we, we can even, the, the Bible says the heart is deceitful. We can even believe that we're pleasing God, not realizing that almost every decision we're still fighting this desire to please ourselves and this selfish ambition, the Bible calls it. And so what Paul is trying to do here in Thessalonians is he's trying to take this whole group. I told you they were all, it was a church full of new believers. He had only been there for three months. He was worried sick that they wouldn't continue to walk in the Lord if they had gotten faith in the Lord. It says they turn from their worthless idols to serve the living God, which means these were pagans. These were brand new Christians. Their whole lifestyle, all they'd ever known is the ways of the world. How many have ever met somebody like that? They've never known anything about the Bible. They know nothing about it. And they've lived the life of the world their whole life, and now they're in this new life. So we get to see Paul very early in his ministry trying to guide them in how to live differently, how to live as a new creature, a new creation, how to live in Christ Jesus. And so Paul comes here with a real hammer here in chapter 4. Okay, for these new Christians, he said, Finally then, brethren, we request... And exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk that you may excel still more. How many know that Paul is giving them instruction? In fact, in the next verse he says, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. 
How many come to church to hear the Word of God taught so you can receive instruction from the Lord Jesus? You say, well, I'm not receiving instruction from that man. He's just a man. But how many know my job is to properly interpret the Bible and make sure I'm giving the proper instruction on how to please God, not please yourself? In fact, these are commandments, and and later he'll say, it's not by the authority of man that you're rejecting if you don't listen. It's the authority of God that you're rejecting. And so I have a very stern um, call of God to make sure I present how to walk peace, how to walk properly before God to please Him. And so he goes in here, and how many know this is important to teach? If Paul thinks this is important for these Christians in Thessalonica, how many know it's important today to teach what he's teaching? And so he says, these are the commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And then some people would say, well, wait a minute, why is he talking about commandments? That's so Old Testament. How many think that's very Old Testament? And the law is gone, and man, we just don't have anything. We're free as little graceful birds, right? And we just don't have anything in our life that we need to have commandments. Come on, Chad, what are you doing here? But how many know that uh, they asked Jesus the question? In fact, one day a lawyer came to him and asked him a question, Matthew twenty-two thirty-five, and he said, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. How many know Jesus is quoting the two great commandments from the Old Testament? He's quoting it and encouraging them to love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in the Old Testament, it's very well understood. In fact, they don't really call it the Ten Commandments. They call it the Ten Words the Jewish people do. So the two commandments are the simplest form of the law. Every Jew will tell you this. The Ten Commandments expand into ten. How many know that? Half of the Ten Commandments are how do you... They expand it on how do I live before God and love God with all of my heart. So he begins to explain on those first commandments, don't make any graven images. You know, don't put any other gods before me. And he goes through all these things that are about how do I worship God and love God with all of my heart. The other five are there to teach you how to love your neighbor. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness. All these different things to tell you how to live around your neighbors and love them. And how many know it's an expansion of the two? Two to make it simple, ten to kind of clarify the two. And then there are 601 more laws. Okay, and those 613 altogether, the two, the ten, and then 601 more, those 601 clarify the ten. How many know there's a whole section in Exodus 21 to 24 after the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and they're clarifying Here's how do not steal is going to be enacted in our judicial system. And so they go through all kinds of laws 
on how if you steal something, here's how you make reparations. If you do this to somebody in their relationship and their marriage, this is how we deal with it. So that's just a little bit of an example of what Jesus began to teach because in the New Testament, you begin to see like the first commandment, for instance, you shall have no other gods before me. In Luke 4, 6, guess what Jesus is quoting? Jesus answered them, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Second commandment, You shall have no graven images, no likenesses in heaven or or on the earth, beneath in the water, under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. The Lord your God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children for the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Then in Acts, guess what they're quoting? They're wondering how to minister to the uh, Gentiles, and they quote, but write to them that they are to abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, from things that are strangled by blood. First Corinthians, guess what he's quoting? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, uh, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, um, factions. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous person who is an idolater will have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Colossians, Paul quotes, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. So each of these commandments, not only are they repeating these commandments from the Old Testament, but now we have what's called the law of Christ. And Christ is now beginning to expand on these laws, and he's trying to say that there's a deeper law than even what they had in the Old Testament. How many of you know this is true? In fact, listen to this. It says, the sixth commandment says, you shall not murder. But Jesus says in Matthew 5.21, you've heard that the ancients said, you shall not commit murder. But whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you are a good for nothing, will be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says you fool will be a guilty enough to go into a fiery hell. Which one would you rather keep? Would you rather keep the one that says you shall not murder? Or would you rather keep Jesus' new command? that you can't even have murder in your heart. Boy, these are... Then he goes to adultery and he says, Exodus 20 says you should not commit adultery, but then Jesus in Matthew 5, 27 says, you have heard that said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So I ask you again, which one would you prefer to try to keep? Don't commit the physical act of adultery. Or if you've lusted after someone in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. How many know that Jesus' standard is actually tougher? It's very difficult to meet what he's actually asking us to do. And, and so the law, one of the things, you have to understand that there is 
many parts of the law. In fact, there's what's called the... Um, I can't find it in my notes, but there's actually what's called the, the, the ceremonial part of the law. And how many know the ceremonial part of the law was abolished? Because Jesus was the fulfillment of the feasts of Israel. He was the fulfillment of each kind of sacrifice. He was the fulfillment. Jesus fulfilled all of the ceremonial parts of the law. And then Jesus also, there's a civil laws that taught Israel how to become a nation. And how many know that we are not governed under the civil laws like they were during the time of Israel? So the civil laws aren't there anymore. But how many know the moral laws, they continue to teach even through the New Testament, the moral laws of God. And so what is Paul saying here? He's taking a group of new Christians and he's telling them to excel more and more. I need you as new Christians. How many know we need it as old Christians? You need to have a desire to excel more and more. Be more excellent morally. And so he's telling them very immediately that we want excellence. And can I ask you a question? This should challenge every one of us to have excellence in every part of our life. How many know that if we are a Christian, we should strive to be the best worker that they have at that workplace? Excellence in everything that we do. We should be strive to be more and more excellence. How many know the church is called, it's a commandment here by Paul to be more and more morally excellent than anybody in our society. We're called to excellence. And so he's saying, I need you as new believers to excel more and more. And then he says in verse three, he said, for this is what? The will of God, your sanctification. Now man, if I were an expository teaching, I mean, no, I might not have a whole message on sanctification. And that's a shame. How many have heard many messages on sanctification? And it says here, the will of God is your sanctification. And man, we've got so much confusion in the church on what sanctification is. We don't understand it. In fact, some of your versions say holiness. It says, this is the will of God, your holiness. How many versions say that? Your sanctification or your holiness. And immediately red flags pop up for some people. Some of you think back to what you were given as a definition of holiness. And just a very simple definition If you took a gift of money and you went to the temple and you handed it to the person at the temple, that money became sanctified. That means that from here on out, it's being used for God's purpose. And how many know when we become sanctified, God wants us to be used for His purpose? And so He's saying that it is the will of God, your sanctification, and there's lots of... um, Lots of poor teaching on sanctification. In fact, uh, one of the things he's already affirmed with the Thessalonians is they have been saved by what? Sanctification? And see, we, we have to know how to answer that question. 
Because sanctification is not what saves you. Sanctification is a part of salvation, but how many know justification is what saves you? In fact, by faith in Jesus Christ, by grace alone, by faith, you're accepting His righteousness, and when God looks at you, guess what He sees? Thank the Lord He doesn't see my righteousness. He sees Christ. And I thank God that with the Thessalonians, that's not what He's seen. Do you know that these Thessalonians were wicked, pagan people that did not know God whatsoever? And here they are less than a year in the Lord. Now what would happen if God looked down at their lifestyle? Do you think they were perfect people? I hope your answer is no. But Paul affirmed that they're already walking in the Lord. Why? Because they're excelling more and more. They were desiring more and more to be sanctified. Now justification is simply this. God gives us His righteousness. He imputes, meaning He gives to us His righteousness because ours is not good enough. How many know that? He died so that we could be saved. His grace and faith in His grace alone is the only thing that saves you because if you think your sanctification saves you, trust me, you're going to be condemned about every day of the week. You're going to go through condemnation over and over and over. It's going to be a never-ending cycle and some people get suicidal over it. How many know that? Some people completely quit the faith because of their desire to get salvation through sanctification. But how many know justification is what saves you? And then when you go to the next level, which is sanctification, which means that God puts you in a position where you're accepted by Him through justification, now He's going to make you what He sees you as already. He's going to sanctify you for a lifetime and you're going to excel more and more and more as a moral character person. How many know that? And we need to submit ourselves to the process of sanctification. And here's two major errors that happen with sanctification. Number one, some people believe that they don't need to be in the process of sanctification. That's called antinomianism. That means that I do not believe that there are any commandments, there's any instructions, there's no desire within me to become holy like God is holy. How many of you know people like that? At no point they said, you know what, I'm saved by grace, and now it doesn't matter what I do, I can live like the devil. And you've got to question whether that person ever truly received the grace of Jesus Christ. And then there's the other extreme And that is, man, if I can live out this lifestyle, if I can be perfect, man, if I can just not make a mistake, if I can just be perfect today, then I'm going to be worthy. I'm going to be worthy of this salvation. And man, if I'm not good enough, I'm condemned. How many know that's another bad teaching that somebody has taught you? But in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. I mean, oh, in Jesus Christ, there's only excelling more and more and more. I'm so glad that Paul defined it that way, excelling more and more, because I can get up every day and be better than I was the day before. I can apply myself 
to living to his standard. And you say, well, what is the standard here? Is the standard here the people I work with? Because I'm nailing it. I mean, I'm nailing it every day. I mean, I'm so much better than the people I work with. I'm probably the best one in my family. And be honest, the church is not that great. And I probably beat my pastor. But how many know the standard is not that? He wasn't telling the Thessalonians to look at your culture. Because this culture at one time, you know, if you look at the early Roman Republic, there actually wasn't hardly ever a divorce. They actually had a pretty good culture several hundred years before, but at the time of this writing, I I don't think any historian would say that our culture right now is worse than that culture. That culture was decadent. That culture was filthy. In fact, uh, Nero, who was the emperor at the time of Paul and executed Paul and Peter, how many of you know that he had a, um, a lover who was a male who he dressed up as a girl? And Nero was so bad that he jumped in front of the Senate and committed suicide by cutting his neck. Now imagine that happening today. How many know that a lot of these political leaders were building temples uh, to homosexual deities? In fact, the temple of Apollo was right there when Paul wrote this letter. It was a homosexual temple with homosexual priests, and then the heterosexual temple was right by it, the, the temple of Aphrodite on a mountain, And it was the same thing. It was sexual immorality of all kinds all around. Uh, Pedophilia was legal in that culture. And it was more decadent than the society that we have. And so Paul goes to his next verse and he says, It is the will of God, your sanctification, your separation, or your be holy, or you be usable for God. He says, that is, so he's clarifying here, abstain from sexual immorality. Now see, I gotta preach that. You say, well don't preach that, don't go into that man, because you're gonna run people off. But how many know that my job as a preacher is to give you a standard that is greater than the people that are around you? It's trying to be more like God, not better than the world. Okay? Pornia is this word for sexual immorality, and it is a Very well-defined word. It's not hard to define what it is when you look at dictionaries. Pornia is where we get our word pornography. You recognize the first four letters, porn. And so pornia is anything that is not within the context of a monogamous marriage. It includes pornography, um, in fact, the Old Testament would define it as uncovering the nakedness of. I mean, no, that's what pornography is. Um, and, and Paul, man, he addresses it so much that I have to address it as a pastor. Um, their society, even when they were the Roman Republic and there were very few divorces, how many know their religion was you go to the temple and part of your worship is actually sexual activity? How many know that from that period of time? Study it very closely, and every commentator will tell you. You say, Chad, I'm I'm embarrassed. Why are you preaching this on Sunday morning? Because our culture is not much different. 
And so Paul is saying fornication was normal for a married man in that culture. In fact, nobody looked down upon it. If you were a unmarried person, get this, fornication was considered normal. They were like, you're not going to live together? What? Man, are you starting to see some comparisons to our society? Hey, Chad, we want to get married. Uh, We're both believers, but we live together in mom and dad's house who are also Christians. Somebody say, Chad, you didn't go there. Paul is saying flee from immorality. Paul is saying there should be no hint among us for immorality. Paul is saying it shouldn't even be spoken of among you, the Christians. I need you to excel in this area. And you say, well, why is it important? It also includes adultery, fornication, homosexual activity. How many of you know everything that was not ordained by God in the garden is considered sexual immorality? And, and you say, well, Chad, you shouldn't do this because there are lots of Christians that are just living like the culture. How many know as a pastor, I have to put that standard way up high? Way up high. You know, this message isn't being preached in very many churches around our city. The feeling is, and you say, well, I see why you're running people off. My job is not to bring masses of people in. My job is to preach the truth. And you say, well, why is it important? Here's one study that, I I mean, it's important because God commanded it, but let me give you another study. In fact, about a year or so ago, I cited this study. It's very fascinating. It is a, um, it's an Oxford anthropologist. In 1934, he was very, um, he was very interested in the Freudian idea that, um, that, um, societies don't do well and he blamed it on repressed sexuality. How many remember this Freudian idea? That because there's repressed sexuality, if you would just release it, society would thrive with that energy. And so this anthropologist at Oxford, his name is J.D. Unwin, he decided to test that theory. And actually, he's not a Christian, not a religious person, and he didn't even disagree with Freud He just wanted to test the theory to see if it was true. And so it's a very well-known study, and it's very well-respected. And he studied 86 different cultures. In fact, he studied the most successful cultures of the world, the Greeks, the Romans, all the different societies. And he laid down criteria as an unbiased studier of culture. And he came up with some fascinating um, findings, and it actually startled scholars, and it startled himself. He didn't uh, plan on having these results, and it kind of surprised him. And his results were, in fact, I'll tell you the way that he uh, began to measure. He, he measured the societies in four different areas. They were, number one, uh, some of them were what he called zoistic which means that they were pretty much, if you look at the society, they were entirely focused on themselves and day-to-day life, their wants and their needs, and they had very little interest in anything else. And so he categorized some societies as that. Some were what he called monistic, which means they were superstitious in the beliefs, but they didn't really have a belief in God. They were just very superstitious. 
And then he had certain cultures that were deistic, which means they had a God and they were very um, careful about serving their God. And then they had one, some that were rationalistic that were just scientific and very rational in their thinking. And he came up with these discoveries. Listen to this. In fact, he, um, he began to see a pattern in the area of sexual restraint. And so he made up a category called pre-marriage purity. Pre-marriage categories or pre-nuptials, what he called it. I don't want to use nuptial because I felt like it would throw people off. We don't use that word much. But his pre-marriage categories were, he labeled some societies as complete sexual freedom, meaning there was no restraint whatsoever pre-marriage. Number two, they had irregular or occasional restraint in their culture, which means sometimes there were periods of sexual restraint. And then they had certain societies that had strict purity, strict chastity, or they remained virgins till they were married. And then during marriage, he charted these as well. Categories were modified monogamy, which means one spouse at a time, um, and termination of the marriage could be terminated by either party. Modified polygamy, men have more than one wife, but the wife's free to leave her husband. Absolute monogamy, only one spouse permitted for the wife until death in some cultures, and absolute polygamy, men and women can have more than one wife, but wives must combine their sexual qualities. And so he began to study 86 different cultures, and here's his most significant findings. Listen to this. Effect of sexual constraint. Increased sexual constraint, either pre or during marriage, always led to increased flourishing of that culture. Conversely, increased sexual freedom always led to collapse of that culture within three generations. So if they had purity before and during marriage... They always flourished. In fact, he found three out of the 86, the highest achieving cultures, had that as their common bond. But the ones who lost restraint sexually and had no purity in the area of sexuality, within three generations, they died. And this is the culture that they're in in Rome. Very decadent culture. Another thing. Surprisingly, the data revealed that the single most important correlation with the flourishing of a culture was whether premarital purity was required or not. The highest flourishing culture, the most powerful combination, was premarital purity coupled with absolute monogamy. Rationalist cultures that retained this combination for at least three generations exceeded in all areas of culture, including literature, art, science, architecture, engineering, and agriculture. Only three out of the 86 uh, study to attain this level. Sounds to me like God knows what he's talking about. And you say, well, I'm not here to change the culture. But how many know we're here to change the culture? But how many know this is exactly is what will happen to your family within three generations? A family that has no sexual or moral purity. If I'm a pastor and I don't ever preach on this thing... How can you ever try to excel more and more in these areas? If I just say, if I say shut up about it, I mean, oh, that's what they want pastors to do. Stay quiet about it. Let people destroy their lives. Don't try to achieve moral excellence in the area of sexual purity. But Paul is very clear that we have to be very careful to make sure that we have moral purity. And so Paul goes on. 
And he gives three ways that we can do this. He says first, in verse 4, each of you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. But Chad, I just don't have any self-control. How many know one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control? In church, we've made excuses for too long. God expects us to excel more and more. And you know what? I've been going to um, an addiction recovery group. You say, well, man, why are you going there? Because I'm learning. I'm, I'm just learning from everybody that's there. And you know how refreshing it is to sit around a table of 20 people that are recovering from some kind of addiction? And they're sitting there and they're saying, you know what? One thing I never do is hang around people that are getting in trouble with alcohol. I've learned that whoever you hang around affects you. And so I'll love them, I'll talk to them, but I don't talk to them very long and I don't hang around them. Because I know that I can't do that and remain not addicted to alcohol. Uh, one of the number, the number one thing where they get trapped is, and I loved it, it said, you must keep in step with the Spirit or you'll fall off the wagon. I thought, man, every Christian should be in this support group. Because you know what? We keep falling off that wagon and nobody's holding us accountable. Nobody's saying there's a higher standard. Nobody says there's moral excellence. Nobody says, and what's amazing about this group that I love, in fact, I really love people that have been in church their whole life and are a high. Have you ever met those third and fourth generation Christians that have had three generations of pastors and you're like, oh man, look at that moral excellence in that person's life. And it's genuine. It's not fake. It's, it's very genuine. But you know what I really like too? I love sitting in a room of 20 people who have been addicted their whole life, and I can see their moral character is excelling more and more. Like, man, I used to be an alcoholic, and I used to drink all the time, but now I'm three months sober. Now I'm six months sober. Now I'm 12 months sober. Now I haven't touched it. Now I went to see my family for the first time during Christmas. Now Do you see that moral excellence is getting more, excelling more and more? And man, they couldn't do that if they didn't understand sanctification. Because they would say, oh man, I failed here, I failed there. How many know God wants you to excel more and more and more? God wants you to look at your life and you say, but Chad, we're not under the law. Well, why did Paul say, it is my schoolmaster? I would not know that I had sin in my life if it weren't for the law to tell me. You say, but Chad, you're going to be condemned by the law. No, the law is my schoolmaster. It teaches me. It says that, hey, thou shalt not murder. And I'm like, oh, good, man, I haven't killed anybody. But you know what? If you're looking at people and you want to murder their joy, you want to murder their success, you want to murder everything about their life because you hate them that bad? How many of you know you committed murder? You say, well, Chad, I've never, I've been faithful in my marriage. I've never committed adultery. Well, you better check yourself. Because if there's lust there, and you say, well, man, am I not saved now? 
No, you just need to be sanctified. You need to apply yourself and say, you know what? More than anything in my life, I want to excel more and more morally. I want to be a person who has character. You know that every qualification for a person to be an overseer of a church or a deacon or any part of a church is moral excellence? You say, well, what about talent? Don't they have to be charismatic and talented and gifted? And No, everything is moral character. It's like how morally good is their character? How do they react in those situations? And so Paul is just doing this, and I love going through his letters because he does. But So number one, he says you should be able to possess your vessel in sanctification. And if you will possess your vessel in sanctification, you will also be honored. How many know that? How many know that it is an honorable thing to possess your vessel in sanctification. And how many here want to be honorable before the Lord? Remember, this is about pleasing God, not about pleasing me. I mean, I, I can probably set a standard where I could please myself. Some of you have met your standard. Unfortunately, you've met your standard. No, I'm doing well. Yeah, how are you doing? Pretty good. I'm doing perfect. Yeah. But how many know I want to meet God's standard? I want to every day be excelling more and more to be more like Christ, more like Him. And that's all Paul's saying, is have a desire every day to be more like Christ, and that's what he wants. And you'll possess your vessel in sanctification and honor. But how do we do it, though? I'm so glad Galatians 5.16 says, this is from Paul as well, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not. Man, those words are there. Will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So you say, well, man, why do I keep failing? It says, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. How many know that we need to get on our knees Say, God, help me. Holy Spirit, I need you because it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that can, that can we, we can excel more and more every day. How many know that? Is that your desire? You say, well, man, when will I, when will I have made it? When will I have made it and I don't sin anymore? That's the third phase called glorification. The Bible says that when we see Him and we're in His presence, we'll be like Him. And we won't sin anymore. But until then, how many know we're in the process of sanctification? And you'll see as we go along, He expects us to be a part of that process. He expects us to apply ourselves every day to excel more and more in His presence. So how do we walk by the Spirit? Sanctification means to be set apart for God, living a pure and a holy life. Um, And then he follows it in verse 5. He says, here's the opposite. Don't be in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. That's an interesting line because what were they a year ago? Gentiles who did not know God. So if you're in church and you're living for Christ and you're in this process of sanctification, um, how many know that we can't live like we don't know God? That's a simple statement, isn't it? There's two kinds of people in the Bible. Really only two kinds. The godless and the godly. 
the godless and the godly. There are those that don't have a God and those that do. And so we don't want to live like those who are godless. So if we say that we have faith in Christ, then we should also have God with us to prove that we're also living for God. And Paul is saying, don't live like you did a year ago. Live like people who know God. Don't live like the ones that don't have God. And how many know if we've given our heart to Christ and we're not applying ourselves to His Word and listening to the Holy Spirit, we're living as if we don't have a God. That's hard words, isn't it? I'm sorry. Please don't take me wrong. I'm, I'm expository teaching. I'm just going through the Scriptures here. I didn't go home and say, I'm going to nail them today. I apologize. So the second thing is, the first thing was, each of you should possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. So self-control through the Holy Spirit. The second thing is, don't live as if you don't have a God. And the third thing is, don't transgress or defraud your brother in this matter. And boy, that's a big one. It says, you should love the other person so you don't harm them. And you say, what are they talking about? He's saying it takes two to tango. That's the if you, the Greek there, okay? That means if you love the person you're in a relationship with, then you should love them enough to keep them pure. And if you're not, he says you've defrauded that brother or sister. And you say, well, that's okay because I just look at pornography. How many know that most of those people that you're looking at, if you look at pornography, have been abused most of their life? A lot of them have been taken into sexual... um, A lot of them have been abused. A lot of them are drug addicted. A lot of them have been kidnapped. I mean, how many know that's a dirty industry? And you say, well, man, I'm not hurting anybody. It's a victimless crime. How many know... You're a part of whatever happened to that person that you're looking at. I mean, no, you're a part of that process. And then God says right after, beware because I'm the avenger of everybody who does these things. Do you think it's right that so many people have abused? I mean, you know, I can remember when I was in high school and you say, man, Chad, this is an awkward message. I remember in high school, two very popular guys in my class laughing because they knew a guy that had gotten so many women pregnant. And they said, that is our hero. We want to be just like him. How many know God is the avenger of that behavior? How many know that there are people bragging about how many people that they've slept with? How many know God is the avenger of that? How many know that there are Christians that are living together and not married? I mean, know that God says, in fact, Paul says, I solemnly warned you that God is the avenger of this. And you say, well, man, there's nothing that's going to happen. You know, I can just do what I want. No, God is saying this is a commandment and this is an instruction. You say, Chad, I don't hear this anywhere else. Well, you should, because Paul's very clear about it. We've got to be morally pure in a society. And you say, well, society's bad. Paul just doesn't understand. And that's why I'm stressing to you the society that Paul was in was worse than this. In fact, Paul wrote this from Corinth. And Corinth was the word you would use for somebody who was sexually immoral. 
It was the word that you would use in that day. Uh, today we might use the word pervert. All right, if they called you a Corinthian, that's what they were calling you, a sexually immoral person. Paul is writing it at that location, the most sinful place probably in the world at the time. Paul is writing this letter to be sexually pure and saying abstain completely from all sexual immorality. Okay, And Paul's writing it uh, in a much worse environment than we'll ever see probably in our world. And so I think Paul meant it for us today too. Hallelujah. Verse 6, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, just as we told you before and we solemnly warn you now, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So what did God call us for? Very important to know. Why did God justify me by his death and why did he save me? He said his purpose was to sanctify you. Remember, sanctification is, I want to use you in this world. You know that when we are obedient to God and we live the way God's called us to live, and it's not just sexual purity. Paul goes into areas of love, goes to the areas of the fruit of the Spirit. How many know if we're just obedient and we let the Holy Spirit do His work? How many know that God's purpose is going to be fulfilled in us? And He says we're going to shine like a bright light in a dark world. You say, well, man, I'll just take the good old-fashioned holiness. I'll just wear my hair up and I'll... You know, and I'll wear a long skirt and I'll... No, God wants the inner holiness. God wants us to take it serious when He says, don't commit murder in your heart. Be nice to people. And we need to read that and say, man, that's what I need to do. When God says, pray for your enemies, we need to do what? Pray for our enemies. When God says, don't commit adultery in your heart, guess what we want to be honorable and try to excel more and more at? And you say, well, man, I keep losing. Well, let's try to get some more people in your accountability group. Let's try to be like that man who's trying to beat heroin or that man that's trying to beat alcohol or that man that's trying to beat a drug. Why don't you hit rock bottom and say, man, I'm not winning. I need help. I need a support group. I need people. Help me walk through it. Stacy, I think that's what you're going to do in your class. We're going to dig deeper, and sometimes we just got to get more honest with what we're struggling with and say, you know what, I can't beat it. It's deep-seated, it's addictive, and I need to beat it. And we need people that are going to stand up and say, man, I want to excel with all my heart more and more in this area because the Holy Spirit is leading, man, I'm walking with the Spirit. Hallelujah. Man, what an exciting message. Everybody looks so excited about this message. (laughs) Jesus said in Matthew 28, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How many know we're to gather together and we're to instruct each other in these things? We have to, church. You say, but Chad, I don't want that. I want a rah-rah message, and I want to, you know, I want you to, can't you be more like Joel Osteen? Not, I don't have anything against Joel Osteen. <laughs> but you know what? We need to be instructed. We need to be encouraged to move forward and excel more and more in the things that God's calling us to do as Christians. And finally, Paul closes with this. Now as to the love of the brethren... 
You have no need for anybody to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren, not just the ones that are likable. You do it to all the brethren. I added that. Who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition. Listen to this. I wish a lot more people were ambitious to do this. Lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward the outsiders and will not be in any need. Uh, why do we mind our own business and tend to our own things? Because we're messed up. You don't have time to mess with everybody else's problems. You've got too many problems. Yeah, help people, love people, be a part of their life. But trust me, you say, well, no, Chad, I, I, I have very few problems because I'm pretty well everything you're preaching about today. I'm excellent. All right. You're the one that needs the most help. Trust me, live a quiet life, attend to your own business, and love everybody around you. Hallelujah. Stand to your feet. I like what uh, Jason said this morning. He said, the new year, we're all trying to turn a new leaf and be a better version of ourselves." And uh, God is not calling us to do that. He's, He's calling us to be more like Him. There's a difference. <laughs> do we want to be a better version of ourselves, or do we want to be more like Him? And He's asking us to be more like Him because a better version of yourself, um, <laughs> that's hard to do. But to be more like Him means I got to totally change, you know, and so that's what God's calling us to do this new year. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and, um, Lord, we thank you for the bar that you set for our life, Lord God. It's bigger than, Lord, it's bigger than the bar anybody around us would set. It's bigger than any bar that I could set, Lord. You called us to do great things, Lord God, incredible things, Lord, things that are so far out of our nature, only the Holy Spirit can do it. And Lord, I just pray right now that the power of your Spirit would be upon this congregation. Lord, you would strengthen them to do things they don't believe they can do within themselves. Lord, you'd strengthen the change and be transformed by your Spirit. Lord, that you would help us um, live out, Lord God, this purity, Lord, in the area of sexuality, Lord. Um, That people would look at us and say, my goodness, those people um, strive to excel in that area and and to be um, an example to the world around them. And and Lord, we just pray that you would help us and you would do it through us, Lord. And uh, do a supernatural work because that's what we need, Lord. Help us in your name we pray. And everybody said... Amen. I want you to find a place, and you have to do it at your seat, standing up, kneeling down, be at the altar, you need prayer. Maybe you've never given your heart to the Lord. Um, that's what we're here for. Pray with you. Hallelujah. So find a place, get honest with God. Hallelujah. get any false illusions about sanctification. You uh, you can leave here and not hear the message of condemnation. That if you have the wrong ideal of sanctification, you will be condemned. And when you go into
went to a hospital, how many uh, realize that we are a hospital? And there are some things that you go in the hospital for. They'll give you a prescription, and within a few days you'll be healed. How many know there are some conditions that are long-term? And when you're dealing with sanctification, understand that this is a lifelong endeavor. How many know that it is a life? long endeavor. Do not be discouraged. Do not be condemned. Just know that we are a hospital. And church, that's why I love my Celebrate Recovery group because you know what? I can sit in a room with 20 people and there's no masks. You say, well, what does that mean? That means that they're so broken, they know they're messed up, and there's no filter and there's no mask anymore. I'm messed up. And then when you walk into a church, you just can't pry that mask off. You know, you can't get somebody to open up and say, Chad, I am a bitter person. Chad, I hate you. I hate your ministry. I want to destroy you because I got murder in my heart. Chad, I am struggling with pornography and you have no idea how bad it is. How many know that the church wears masks? In church, we've got to apply ourselves. These were people that were less than a year in the Lord. They were pagans. They were in pagan religious shrines. And Paul said, such were some of you. Some of you were homosexuals, he said. Some of you were drunkards. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were fornicators. Some of you were greedy. Some of you had malice. But not anymore. You've been washed, he said. By the blood of Jesus. How many think that's awesome? In fact, I know what Corinth was like. I know what Thessalonica was like. That's what gets me so excited. Because these were some of these were kids that grew up abused, sexually abused. And that was who was in Paul's church. Hallelujah. Sanctification is a process, church. You can't sometimes we think it's a microwave thing. You come up to the front and I say, pow, sanctified. And if that doesn't happen, we walk away. Church, we got to walk with each other through sanctification, through the toughest things in life. I can promise you there's not a thing you'll ever tell me that I'll tell other people and you're not going to shock me. And you say, well, Chad, I'm the saint. Perfect. Nothing I'm struggling with. Yeah, we're saints by the blood, but how many know we're all in this process of sanctification? Let's be honest. Hallelujah. Let's close the prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you. Lord, help us, Lord. Help us care for our brothers and sisters. Lord, help us uh, ask questions when we know there's a struggle. Lord, help us walk beside each other, Lord, and not against each other, Lord. Help us be honest and not wear masks. Lord, help us fully grab a hold of sanctification and, and understand it fully and not misunderstand it, Lord. Lord, let your grace be applied in every life. Make us more excellent, Lord God, for the world around us, Lord. For ourselves, Lord. Almighty work in us, Lord. In your name we pray and everybody said.